Exactly. We want the kids going and seeing that space as possibility. We want them to see the equipment and have a sense of, yeah, I can do this. But too often um, traditional, standard, common physical education method based on drills and a homogenised expectation of achievement uh, convinces kids of what they can't do rather than what they can do. And as we said, often they already knew they couldn't do this before they stepped into the space and five weeks later that's just been reinforced to them. So now when they walk past a space, and just using volleyball as that example, they don't see that as a physical activity opportunity because their experiences of it have confirmed to them that they suck at it, they're hopeless at it, they're no good at it. So even though the space may be provided to them at the beach, in a park, at a school, in a gym, they're not going to see that as a physical activity option because they're mentally set to go, I can't do that. This is the Fizz Edcast with your host, Nathan Horn. Hello and welcome back. Nathan Horn from iPhysEd.com here, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the PhysEdCast. My guest today is someone who I consider a true mentor. Shane Pill is one of Australia's leading coach educators and developers and thought leaders in the area of physical education. He started off his career as a physical education and science teacher back in 1988, and he has, over the past 20 years, developed leading curriculum and pastoral care initiatives, including twice leading school cluster group participation in the Australian Government Quality Teacher Program. He's held multiple leadership positions from head of department, sport coordinator, year-level coordinator, curriculum coordinator, assistant principal, and deputy principal, as well as coaching and managing many teams across many different curriculum. Initiatives. Since 2006, Shane has worked in higher education and he's currently employed by Flinders University in South Australia. Shane's research is in the fields of sports coaching and physical education curriculum and pedagogy, as well as education leadership. He has authored over 150 peer reviewed and scholarly articles and six resources on the concept of play with purpose using a game sense approach. Shane's an experienced consultant and education provider to the sport and education industry, contributing to well-being, physical activity, sport and physical education work groups, committees and reference groups in South Australia and Australia-wide. He has worked with Departments of Education, the Australian Sports Commission, Tennis Australia, Cricket Australia, the South Australian Cricket Association, the Australian Football League, the South Australian Football League, the South Australian Certificate of Education Board and the Australian Rugby League. He has spent much time reviewing school programs locally and internationally, and I consider him one of the leaders in the space of coaching and sport pedagogy. I've been lucky enough to meet Shane a couple of times, uh, most notably at a conference in Hong Kong where we spent some time uh, floating down the uh, the Hong Kong harbour on a junk boat with beers in hand. Uh, as you'll discover throughout this conversation, uh, once... Shane and I get talking a little bit about games and purposeful game design. It's really difficult to stop us. I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation and take something from it. Um, I certainly did. And Shane's somebody who I continue to look to as a mentor, as I strive to improve my practice and pedagogy around the way that I teach games in my program. Today's episode is brought to you by the Phys Ed Library. 
For the past eight years, I've been producing resources, teaching online courses, creating games, and giving you assessment tools and templates to use in your classes. Sometimes finding what you're looking for to help you become a better teacher can be really difficult and at best downright confusing. Knowing where to go for purposeful physical education resources can really take you down the rabbit hole of Google, Twitter, and Facebook groups. I think I've solved that problem for you. The Phys Ed Library is our comprehensive collection of professional learning resources. That's right, every single resource that I've ever made is part of the Phys Ed Library. That includes all of my online courses and webinars, our games database full of purposeful games, assessment tools and templates, downloadable visuals, podcasts, webinars, and so much more. Maybe you've taken one of our courses before, maybe you've been lucky enough to come to our in-person workshops. Right now we have 35 online courses available for you, each with certificates of completion presented by some of the best physical educators from all around the world. Perhaps you're looking for some games to play with your classes. Our growing games database is full of quality games presented in easy to use one page game sheets, which include at home and social distance modifications. Perhaps you're looking for some assessment tools to print and use in your lessons. Look no further than the Phys Ed Library. Memberships are available on a monthly, yearly, or lifetime basis, as well as our ever-popular group membership option. That's right, you and your colleagues can join together to gain access as a department for the Phys Ed Library. We have a number of schools and districts from all around the world who have taken advantage of this offer and got their entire PE departments signed up as members of the Phys Ed Library. Our library currently has 400 committed physical educators as part of our community and as a member of the Phys Ed Library, you're able to connect and communicate with each one of these amazing physical educators from all around the world. As the creator of the Phys Ed Library, obviously I'm quite biased, but uh, here's what some of our members have to say. Well, Nathan, I just want to thank you for uh, making iPhysEd.com available to all of us. Um, I truly enjoy this website that you've created. Uh, right off the bat, uh, one thing that I can tell you that I love about this site is the uh, online training. Um, I've only completed five courses so far of the 35 that you offer, but I love the certificates. Um, and I've been able to turn these in uh, to use as professional development uh, with my school that I teach at North Bullet High School here in Bullet County, Kentucky. Uh, and for you guys that have never heard of Bullet County, Kentucky, we're right outside of Louisville, Kentucky. And um, this is my 23rd year of teaching. I would have never, I never could have imagined when I first started teaching that uh, how everything has changed from going from paper grade books to all electronic, to going from strictly teaching in my gym to now teaching online. And to be able to access these resources, uh, it's a true game changer. The assessments are another of my favorites. And then I also love the games database. That has been great as well. But my favorite aspect this year has been the uh, the online courses that you've made available to us. Thank you so much. If you're interested in signing up for the Phys Ed Library, head on over to iphyzed.com backslash learn to get started. And now here's Shane. Please note that this interview was recorded in December 2020. Shane, how's it going? Very good here in Adelaide. Yeah, so thanks for, uh, for joining us. For, we were just chatting a little bit before about uh, you guys were on a, on a hard lockdown for a couple of days, but it seems like things have uh, have turned around and, and you should be getting out of it. So um, for all those people that are listening and have been seeing the headlines about uh, the lockdown in, in South Australia, um, 
it uh, it was all based on a lie, according to according to Shane. So happy to have him here with us today, and, and looking forward to chatting with him a little bit um, about purposeful uh, game design, sport literacy, um, and just general good practice in in the space of physical education. So for those people that uh, that don't know you, Shane, can you give us a little bit of background about about you, what you do, and and sort of what you're passionate about? So I'm a former health and physical education teacher, taught in schools for 18 years. My last appointment, I was uh, acting deputy principal. I had decided that after four years of that, it wasn't really where I wanted my career to go and I was looking to get back to be a head of department, maybe a sports coordinator, those roles in the past that I'd had that had brought me a lot of joy as well as interest. An opportunity came up at Flinders University in teacher education uh, I thought I might have a go at that because I figured teaching is teaching, it's physical education, that's where my interest and my passion lies. I was fortunate to win that position. I've now been at Flinders University for 15 years. I'm an Associate Professor in Physical Education and Sport, do most of my work in uh, physical education, sport, curriculum and pedagogy, also do some work in school leadership and teach curriculum studies for senior and middle school and a topic called sport and physical education which looks at the commonality between sports coaching and physical education teaching uh, which is pedagogy. Yeah, and I think it's interesting when we first connected, I think we'd connected online um, and then we were both lucky enough to be in Hong Kong together for a, for an APEC conference there um, a few years back now, 2015 maybe I think it was, um, and it was great to sort of connect in person. And I think one of the things that I've always admired about you is, yeah, that connection that you make between physical education and coaching and the sport world and, you know, as as a physical educator, and I, th- and I think, you know, it's a, maybe this is a completely different conversation altogether, but typically physical education has been very, very heavily weighted on that sport um, side of things. Um, and I think one of the things that you do really well is, is um, teach teachers how to maybe teach sport with a little bit more, more purpose. So um, can you maybe explain a little bit about your philosophy around sort of that, that play with purpose or that, that purposeful sort of sport model yeah it's um it's a really interesting pathway that i've trod so i came out of teachers college and what what stayed with me was this idea of the ideal lesson plan and the ideal lesson plan was a was a template that you could pick up and you could put into place pretty much anywhere and we developed these ideal lesson plans and ideal units of work and they're fantastic as a beginning teacher because we had resources across most of the, the sports and coming out of the 80s, it was a strong emphasis on a sports-based physical education program, although there was also still a very strong emphasis on gymnastics and athletics. I mean, we had to do gymnastics every year of Teachers College. Uh, our first year uh, exam in gymnastics, uh, to give you an example, on the parallel bars, we had to do a mount on the parallel bars, uh, a couple of swings, into a side straddle, back into a couple of swings and then a dismount. And then the next year that progressed to the same thing but with a forward roll. And then the next year it was a forward roll into a handstand, then into the swings and the dismount. So we also were expected to have high levels of movement competency in the activities that we were going to teach, the philosophy being don't ask the kids to do what you can't do for yourself. 
We now see in teacher preparation a reduction of the contact time and there's just no way that we can bring to a practical uh, competency level pre-service teachers' abilities to be able to do everything that they might be asked a student to do. So therefore, uh, there's been a strong shift towards uh, pedagogy as the basis in teacher education rather than competency. So I came out of this uh, 1980s era of um, teacher objectives set the agenda, uh, teachers, phys ed teachers nearly needing to be highly competent in the activities that they were going to do with the students so they could exemplify them. And after a few years teaching, um, my head of department at the time, he came out of the UK and he would start every lesson with games. I would start every lesson with a series of drills leading into games. I would say we got similar outcomes with our students, but I, I thought watching his classes, they looked more interesting and looked like the type of classes that I would want to be in. Then I went to a couple of PD sessions. One was an Australian football coaching level two, and they put us in touch with the work that um, Charlesworth was doing in designer games and the emphasis that Rick Charlesworth had on a game should be deliberately designed to have tactical, technical and fitness components. So you don't separate those three out in a training session. You can use good game design to achieve all three outcomes. Not long after that, the Australian Sports Commission released the work that they had done on the Game Sense approach, and it was like you know worlds were colliding. There was the example of Brian, who'd been trained in the UK, came out with this, what I'll call a games-based approach. The Level 2 coaching course had introduced us to the work of Rick Charlesworth, arguably Australia's most successful international coach. The Game Sense approach was in. So I started to bring those ideas which were challenging the way that I had been taught to teach phys ed and played around with them in my sports coaching. Getting some success in my sports coaching, I then brought them into my phys ed class. Mid-1990s, Australia tried to implement a national curriculum. It was heavily based on inquiry orientation. The Game Sense approach fitted that inquiry orientation really well. So I continued to move forward with experimenting with the Game Sense approach as a game-based, not game-only, approach to teaching games and sport in physical education. But over time, I began to see that people took up game-based ideas as simply let's play the game, whereas the games need to be purposeful, deliberately designed. So the teacher needs to have a clear understanding of the intent of the game for an educative outcome. So I started to attach the phrase play with purpose to emphasise to others this notion of deliberate design and to also emphasise that game-based is not game only. Teachers have been using small-sided, modified, scaled, constrained, conditioned, you know, whatever is your epistemological perspective, you'll attach one of those terms. But they've been using games as a teaching tool you know, forever. It's not the games themselves that make game-based approaches distinctive. It's the intent to use those games and the pedagogy that is associated with it that determines to put the responsibility for learning to the players and the way that teachers do that. And I know I did this as a science teacher as well. It's not unique to PE. Is to create an inquiry-orientated framework where the thinking of the students becomes visible in such ways that they can inquire on their learning and into their learning in order to drive new understandings. Hence, I came up with the, the idea of Play With Purpose. Coming into universities, we're expected to publish. About 2006 in my PD sessions, I was giving out a, 
25, 30-page handout, and Jeff Emmel, the then National Executive Director of the Australian Council for Health, Physical Education and Recreation, said, you shouldn't be giving that away. Why don't you turn it into a resource? We're looking to publish something. So I worked with Jeff Emmel, and in 2007, Atchba released the first play with purpose. Yeah, fantastic resource. I've got it uh, uh, at my school. I use it all the time. Um, and I think one of the things that you, you touched on there, I think, is, um, you know, we know that kids love to, to play games. Kids don't love to come into to the gym or go out onto the field and, and, and do drills. It's not something that they, they enjoy to do. So I feel like a large part of, of that, that hook is, is that gameplay. And then, you know, those really skilled teachers like, like you're talking about are those ones that are able to use that, that as a hook to then drive, like you say, those educative outcomes and, and really try to use the game as, as the teaching tool. Um, something that I know that, that I try and, and aspire to do with, with my students when I teach them is to get them to understand that idea that, you know, you can be the most highly skilled player um, in a certain game. Um, but if you don't also understand the, the sort of the hidden tactics or, or those ideas that underpin how the game actually works, then your skills will only take you so far. So you sort of talked about that, that game sense model. And I love how that, for those people that, that aren't aware of it, that idea of, you know, that, um, you know, the, the decision-making and the skill execution give you that, that competency. So if you know, you know, how to do it and you're able to do it, then, then you're going to be, be competent in it. So, um, I, I really appreciate that approach. I've seen you deliver some some great um, professional development to to teachers around the way that you sort of build that understanding through through games. So I don't know if you can give us a, a really uh, quick example of you know if you were trying to deliver a lesson to to students or to teachers, even like how would you go about introducing that to someone who had no experience and no background in that area at all? first question I always ask is what is it you want the students to learn? Generally, it will start off, well, it, it depends on their paradigm. You can think of volleyball as, um, and this is how I was taught to think of volleyball and plan that ideal lesson plan. So what do we need to do? Well, volleyball, we need to dig, set, spike, serve, um, block. Okay, there's five weeks, one week on each of those. And we will bring, if we start with the forearm pass in week one, we'll bring that into week two, but we'll focus on setting and then we'll bring that into week three and add in the third pass, which will be the hit over the net, which will progress into a spike. Whereas I ask people to start thinking about what's the problem in the game? So volleyball, the problem in the game, the first one is keep the ball off the floor. What do you need to do to keep the ball off the floor? Be there before the ball. You've got to be in that space before the ball. Now, that creates volleyball as a very dynamic game, whereas what I, what I used to see in volleyball was people would line up in pairs, the ball would be thrown, ideally land in that bread basket, you do a forearm pass up in the air, catch it above your head, height for time for the setter, etc. That was ideal. Well, you don't forearm pass the ball to yourself. You forearm pass the ball to someone in a particular position on a court to achieve a purpose. Secondly, on a game of volleyball, it's not likely the ball's going to consistently come to you in that nice controlled way. So we, we teach players in their first game exposure that they don't have to move to get the ball. The ball comes to them and they hit it to themselves. So we then have, we're teaching them something they have to unlearn after that. 
So rather we can decrease the technical complexity from the game to focus on the problem. So if the players come in at you know five, six, seven, where we would assume having come through a good PE program, they should be at the stage of being able to catch, throw, pass and, and move because they're movement skills that are identified in most curriculums by the end of year four for competency, then we can use those skills to teach the logic of the play and progressively increase the technical complexity towards this construction that we call volleyball. But we can play a throw-and-catch game where someone would walk on the court, see the logic of only a minimum number of passes on one side of the court, get the ball onto the ground on the other side, on a space which is divided by a net and go, oh, they're playing volleyball, even though it's throw and catch. So the idea is to find the challenge point of the players, decrease the technical complexity to that challenge point so there's a bit of stretch, but by decreasing the technical complexity and lifting their their thoughts externally to what is the problem that has to be solved rather than how do I make my body move and control my body. We can add that in, and in fact, I think you've probably been in my workshop where I I teach people to play volleyball without any external removal from the game, and over a series of an hour or so, we're digging and we're setting without doing any isolated practice, simply by conditioning the movements that you're allowed to do with your body and occasionally taking some people out for some specific one-on-one if they're not getting it, but the majority of people are able to manipulate their body position to eventually legally forearm pass and set the ball without any isolated drilling of that task. Yeah, I think it's that's a really important point as well that, you know, if we look at those those game-based approaches, and I think it's in the, maybe it's like the Teaching Games for Understanding, um, it's in one of Joy Butler's articles about um, assume that all participants are, are capable um, in playing a game. And I think a lot of the time what we do with young, young kids as well is we say, well, you know, you, you don't have the skills to be able to do it. So we, we need to teach you the skills first and, and definitely skills are important in, in being able to be successful in, in the larger version of the sport. But what you're talking about now is like you're saying, reducing that, that technical, um, capacity to a point where the game looks very much like, a game of volleyball, like you've, you've explained, but they're not needing to demonstrate those skills until they have the understanding of how to actually play the game. Um, and then you can work on those skills. And, and I like to do this with, with my students with, you know, like really simple net wall games in terms of um, using boundaries as a way to sort of guide that learning. You know, if you make a court that is um, long and narrow and the students know that to win a point, they need to be able to, you know, throw or, or hit or send that, that ball into an open space on the court, they're going to need to move their opponent forward and back. So then they start getting into those, those thoughts of, you know, well, how do I send, send the ball deep or how do I, you know, do a drop shot? And then in the same way, you completely flip it and say, okay, now the court's really wide, but it's quite short. So now you're getting them to move side to side. So I think, you know, that idea of designing games in a way that are go- that's going to, um, I guess drive students down certain paths that you want you want them to go down, and, and and like you said earlier, it's if you know what your outcome is, if you know what it is that you want to achieve, then it's much easier to design games like that. Absolutely, and you've hit on something really important there: is you have to know your students. And one of the things that I take from Teachers College right to this day is that you have to pretest. Now, pretest doesn't necessarily mean drill them to do the test. But you need data about 
your students' capabilities in order to be able to design for that challenge point. Otherwise, you're guessing, and for a professional, guessing's not good enough. So we need data at the start to know where our students are, and we can use a game to assess students' um, competencies, understandings. Then we're able to design the challenge points of those games for the range of learners that we have in our group. Using the first game as retrieval practice of known skills, abilities and understandings and to set the stage for future challenges. We can then identify those students that aren't progressing at the rate that we would hope to and then we can put interventions in place for those particular students. Using that first game as diagnosis, we know the challenge point of future activities that need to occur in the lesson and they may be different than what we anticipated for. But again, data needs to be our friend because data is what enables us to do good design. Without data, we're guessing, and guessing's not good enough. And without data, we're putting a one-size-fits-all approach in, catered towards the middle level, which means the high-end students are not being pushed, which means the bottom-end students are not being stressed, uh, stretched. So we're not meeting the needs of all the learners in our class. If we don't do pre-testing, yeah, and at the and end it, of it, we don't have any data to know whether any learning has occurred. So, again, we're guessing as to whether learning has occurred, which to me is not a level of accountability that is suitable to a professional practice. Yeah, and it, 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 I've, I've heard you talk about this before in, in that idea of, you know, like the way that, that we've maybe taught in the past is, and you, you've used volleyball, I've heard you, you say this before, is, you know, like, the kids who, who who suck at volleyball at the start of a volleyball unit probably still suck at the end of the unit in the way that we, that we normally teach it. So, but if if we don't collect that data and we don't you know understand where our students are at to start with, then we can't help them sort of move along um, that path. And I've seen it um, just in my school in the past uh, the past couple of weeks where we're sort of going through net and wall units and and uh, in one of the other classes with one of the other teachers, there um, are some students who yeah really struggle with with volleyball they're they're playing sort of volleyball style games and the teacher being able to bring that um that level of skill that's needed to to um to play the game down so allowing them to catch allowing the ball to bounce maybe once um after it comes over the net those kids then walk away from that lesson they're like hey like that was one fun. I was engaged. Um, I've learned something and my, my skill level has improved and I'm now motivated to want to improve even further because I can see that there is some benefit to me doing this rather than standing on the court, having the ball come to them and either jumping out of the way um, or, you know, not being able to then successfully get the ball back, back over the net. Exactly. We want the kids going and seeing that space as possibility. We want them to see the equipment and have a sense of, yeah, I can do this. But too often, um, traditional, standard, common physical education method based on drills and a homogenised expectation of achievement convinces kids of what they can't do rather than what they can do. And as we said, often they already knew they couldn't do this before they stepped into the space, and five weeks later that's just been reinforced to them. So now when they walk past a space, and just using volleyball as that example, they don't see that as a physical activity opportunity because their experiences of it have confirmed to them that they suck at it, they're hopeless at it, they're no good at it. So even though the space may be provided to them at the beach, in a park, at a school, in a gym, they're not going to see that as a physical activity option because they're mentally set to go, I can't do that. So 
by looking at challenge point, by modifying the games to be able to stretch the students because we're responsible for their learning, but at the same time give them that sense of accomplishment so that they see the space and their potential to activate it for physical activity is going to mean that we look at physical education differently than if we're about um, stylizing movements based on elite patterns of participation in a game. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting one because, you know, there is such a big focus, I guess, on developing those fundamental movement skills um, at a young age. Um, and I know a lot of programs and a lot of places around the world, it is, you know, very much can you replicate this movement so that it looks, everybody looks the same. Does I mean, my thinking around that is, you know, if if you can do it and it looks somewhat right and it's effective for you, then that's that's all that you need to be successful. Like I don't need to run like Usain Bolt, but if I can get from point A to point B as quickly as I need to be, then that works for me and that enables me to be to be active. Yeah, there are biome- there are biomechanical markers that we would look for, and regardless of your um, physiological capabilities, there are certain biological markers that we would use to look at performance, effectiveness, and efficiency. Because we don't want movement patterns that are going to put stress loads on the body so that the individuals get injured by um, repeating those particular patterns of movement. Also, as physical educators, I think we should be aware of what Alan Launder talked about, and that's dead-end techniques. So a dead-end technique will only take you so far, but then your performance will not be able to go any further. So as physical educators, we want to be able to give people movement models that they're able to continuously build upon. So, yes, there isn't a standardised model, but there are biomechanical checkpoints that we can look at in order to make sure that the movement is as effective and as efficient for that person's stage of readiness as it can be. But, again, it comes down to understanding that person's stage of readiness their challenge point for the activity as to where we come in with our interventions, whether those interventions are a game, whether those interventions are a drill, whether those interventions are a task card because they're ready for some independent self-regulated learning. It's our it's our data on our students that will be able to inform that pedagogical decision-making. Yeah, definitely. And you've talked a lot about challenge, I guess, is maybe that is the challenge for a lot of teachers is, you know, how do you find that, that correct level of challenge for your, for your student? Like what things would you be looking for in terms of being able to know where your students are at and, and how to challenge them further? Yes. A formative assessment is an important part, regardless of what subject you're teaching. And I was just reading about some of Dylan Williams work on the weekend. And I like his idea of the, the traffic lights where you're continually monitoring the students and making a judgment about whether they're, Um, not there yet, whether they're there or whether they're past it. And you can just use the red, amber, green coding at the end of each lesson to quickly think about where the students are at as part of their formative assessment. You might make some annotations as you're going through. It's very difficult to assess every student every lesson. So I often suggest that people do it in blocks. They look at a particular four or five students in one lesson, then another lesson. Then over a period of four or five lessons, you've looked at every child and made sure that you've um, got to every child as well. Because it's very easy to um, be consumed by the students that are demanding your attention. 
but we've got to make sure that we're giving all the students attention. And if we're not tracking that, again, we're guessing. So simple tools to help us track and monitor our own work means that we'll do better work with the students. And again, I'm not suggesting these need to be elaborate and time-consuming tasks where we watch video of all of our students after every lesson. But as students progress, I think we should be putting responsibility for them to be watching their performances and providing feedback to us about where their learning goals are. When I look at my involvement in community sport, at um, the state league clubs and the amateur clubs that I've worked at, it's quite common for the under 16, so the 14, 15, 16-year-olds, to be having to watch vision of their performance, assess that performance against the agreed learning goals, and then have a check-in with their uh, line coach about how they performed on the weekend against those learning objectives and monitoring how the improvement was occurring. Now, if we can do that in community sport because it powers up learning and leads to better players, we can do that in our PE classes just as effectively where the students are put uh, in the position where they have to report back to us at the end of the lessons. They're monitoring against the agreed goals so that they're gathering evidence towards achievements whether it's an achievement standard and outcome and objectives-based um, assessment. And that way, when the teacher's grade occurs, there is no surprise to anybody. Now, the worst thing I think that can happen to a student is they only know their assessments when they get a grade at the unit of work because by then it's too late to do anything about it. And typically, there's no chance to... Um, act on that feedback that comes to at an end of unit of work because unit of work has moved on to something else. Yeah, it's an interesting one, and, and you sort of bring up assessment. And that was going to be my next sort of uh, question, line of questioning. Was um, I know that uh, when I was back in Singapore, you know, five six years ago, I was, assessment was something that. Um, that I was really trying to improve on. It was something that I identified for myself was an area that that I needed to to put some some effort into and some work into. And I read a few of the the articles you'd you'd written around like authentic assessment of, of games, um, and come, came across things like the the game performance assessment instrument, team sport assessment protocol, and all these sort of um, assessment tools that can benefit. Um, student learning in terms of, of gameplay. So I wonder if you can you can talk a little bit about tools like that and how tools like that can sort of help teachers and help students. And you wrote a really good series of articles on that that uh, I remember trying to encourage you to write up to publish in JOPERD or Physical Education Matters, Active and Healthy Magazines, et cetera. So for those people that uh, watch this, listen to this uh Chase up Nathan's series of articles, yeah, which I'll, they were on your website. I'll be sure to link them. There? I'll link them in the. Yeah, they are. They're still on the website, um, so I'll link them in the in the description below this episode. Yeah, very good resource for teachers to get hold of. Um, so thank you for the the work that you did in summarising your thoughts in that series of articles. Well, we know there's only two validated instruments for gathering student data on game performance, and that's the teaching um, the tactical games assessment model from Mitchell and colleagues' work from the Tactical Games model in the US, which is a US version of TGFU. And then there is Grahan's work um, mainly on invasion games, but I've shown how his uh, tactical decision-making assessment can be modified to other game categories as well. 
So they're the only two that we know that as teachers we can use with confidence that the tools are validated and reliable for the purpose of assessing students' in-game performance of tactical and technical ability. The work that's been done on those indicate that from about age 10 onwards, so grade five, students who are taught how to do the assessment can assess themselves and others quite effectively using scaled versions of those tools. Um, Matthew Pomeroy in the United States, uh, I think he's got a blog where he shows how to use one of those tools in his primary school physical education class. And he's just written a chapter with Stephen Harvey in our Perspectives on Game-Based Coaching about how he uh, uses assessment in that particular uh, tool in his primary school class. That, that all links back to the earlier conversation around, you know, data is our friend because data helps us be better designers of environments for the learning needs of our students. When we look at fundamental movement skills, most of those um, checklists are commonly biomechanically orientated, which look at the um, kinetic chain to determine whether the kinetic chain is fully formed or whether there's a break in the chain. And people are asked exactly as you described earlier, does the movement look right? Yes. Okay. How can we make it smoother? Do we need to make it smoother and more efficient is the question we ask. Does the kinetic chain look right? No, it looks clunky. At what point does it look clunky? Okay, do I need to do something about that is the question that we then ask. And we can actually you know, do a checklist down the biomechanical markers to specify exactly where the intervention needs to go. And that's really useful because we're not coming in overlay, overlaying too much information on the learner. We can be very precise with our information and focus just on that piece before we need to move on to something else. Because, again, we know that we need to build it bit by bit. We don't come in with all of the things that need to be improved. It's a phrase that I picked up from Fran Cleland Donnelly at an ASPR International Conference nearly a decade ago. She called it coherent complexity. Whether we're designing curriculum or we are doing our assessment, there needs to be a coherent progression in the complexity of what we're doing because our aim is for the students to be better in the future, whatever we decide the better is, than what they are now. So unless we have thought about what that future is, we can't design for it. We can't build them coherently towards that progressive complexity or you know, which we might metaphorically call an increase in ability. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Of, I know for teachers, me when I was exploring. Sorry, mate, a lot of teachers rely on rubrics. Oh, sorry, you go. Yeah, a lot of teachers rely on rubrics. But the question on rubrics is, have we done any internal moderation amongst our staff? So we all know that when we look at a student performance, we're all looking at the same thing and thinking the same standard. We've got the same idea of assessment level across that rubric. So... Now, a lot of rubrics lose their effectiveness because they haven't been moderated, tested with other people to find out whether the assumptions of the rubric uh, hold when many people use the rubric. That's not to say that rubrics are wrong or that teachers can't effectively develop rubrics, but what we're saying is to improve the quality of our rubrics, we need to go through some form of validation 
and testing of reliability. So when we work in teams, that's obviously easier to do because we can do that as a group of uh, teachers in a learning community. When we work as individual teachers in a primary school, we might be the only teacher. That's much harder unless we can develop a community of learning in our district or our state. Yeah, what I was going to say before is I think um, you touched on the point of, of students being able to assess themselves and others. So that that idea of self assessment and peer assessment that was definitely the path that that I I took in in that that blog series that you talked about was, you know, it for me it really started as. Um, I was frustrated with my students. I was frustrated that they didn't seem to be understanding uh, during an invasion game the need to um, find open space, but also when when they noticed somebody who was in open space to be able to actually pass the ball to that person quickly so that the space didn't evaporate. So I was thinking, well, how can I how can I get them to see this? How can I get them to to understand this problem? And and so it became. I designed a really simple um, assessment uh, tool that was around passing and catching. Um, and so the, the first one was uh, basically they were watching one person um, on the other team and every time that they made a pass, they would, uh, they would sort of make a mark on the sheet and then they had to mark whether the person that they were passing to had caught it or dropped it. And so that was, that was the first step of it. And so, they started to look at that and then, you know, every time we'd switch teams out, they, they'd share that, that data with the person they were watching and have a little conversation about it. Um, and then we, we sort of made it a little bit more difficult and we said, okay, like now I want you to look at, you know, whether you think that the pass that they made was, you know, what would be defined as a, as a good pass or a, or a bad pass in terms of whether the person was, was open and, and in space. So now it got them thinking about, you know, well, what does that even look like? What, what am I actually looking for? So as a class, we talked about, well, what, what would that look like? What would a, a good pass be? Um, we were able to come up with that idea that, you know, someone who's by themselves, there's not a defender near them and they're in, they're in a position to be able to receive, receive the ball. So then they went through, through and did that. So it, it started with, with a problem. Um, and we, we designed this, um, this tool to sort of try to get them to be able to see that from a removed standpoint. So as they were not playing, they were, uh, they were able to do that. And, and I just noticed such a huge difference in the students understanding, but also when they went back into the game, they were, they were more willing and more able to be able to get into those spaces and to make those quick passes. Um, and so from, from then on, really I, like peer assessment in that sort of, that sort of same idea using assessment tools like the ones that you've talked about, um, I think has been something that's been really um, transformative to, to my teaching and, and to my students. Um, and they sort of, they enjoy now that that time, whereas previously, you know, if you're doing those sort of small-sided games and you have like one team or two teams who are not participating in the game because of a lack of space or a lack of numbers, now they have something meaningful that they can actually do that's going to still engage them in learning. It's going to improve their understanding but also provide that data and that feedback to the students who are actually uh, playing playing in the game. Yeah, and what you've described there is a really powerful demonstration of accelerating students' learning through that peer teaching. You know, we know your anecdotal evidence there, we know from the research evidence that when we ask the peers to sit back and assess the on-court behaviour of an opposition or a teammate, it then mentally sets them for performance when they go on the court. So we've massively accelerated their development through that time-out period where they're doing their bench coaching. 
that may not have occurred if they were involved in the game and thinking primarily about got to win the point, got to get the ball over the net, got to be able to, you know, kick goals to win. Getting them to, as you say, remove themselves, be able to stand back, take that bigger picture by looking at another player, they then go onto the court set to perform in the way that they've just provided feedback to their peer. They're also now thinking, oh, geez, my peer's now probably watching me do this, so I'm going to do what I've just told my peer to do. Massively accelerates the learning. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm conscious of time because we like to keep these to about 30 to 40 minutes. So um, we could talk for, for hours on this topic and I really enjoy the, the conversations that we have. I remember sitting on the, the top of the junk boat there in Hong Kong as we, we sort of floated down the harbour chatting about all this stuff. So it's, it's, uh, it's always good to catch up with you. But uh, as we sort of wrap this up, I normally finish with, uh, with three sort of quick questions. Um, so I'll just shoot the question at you, sort of first thing that comes to, to your mind um, and... Uh, and we'll, we'll go from there. So the first question uh, that I like to ask in my last three is, what's something that people don't know about Shane Pill? Uh, I'm a fan of the Phantom. Oh, I, was, I was hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> I, got I, uh, I, I, see, I see you posting online all your Phantom collection. <laughs> yeah, what is it, what is it about the Phantom that... Uh, that t- Oh, look, um, it's the comics that, that... There was the comics that got me into the Phantom and I stopped once they went to the more collage style. I like the, the strip comics. Uh, yeah, the Phantom was huge when I was a kid. Um, lots of sports people um, followed the Phantom. In Australia, the Phantom was uh, high profile and I think what attracted me to it was not that high profile um, but the fact that the Phantom didn't have any superpowers. The Phantom had super intellect and the Phantom would diffuse situations through conversation. Um, and, of course, if, you know, if roughnecks um, were rough, then, of course, he was able to be rough back. But it was intellect that was his superpower and an intellect that all of us are capable of achieving if we set our mind um, to it. I think it also is pretty cool that for a lot of Australians they thought, the setting of the Phantom could be set in Australia, even though it was sometimes assumed it was some somewhere in Africa or uh, um, somewhere like a Sri Lanka. Uh, yeah, so I was a yeah. member of the Phantom fan club. I've got uh, Phantom memorabilia, yeah, Phantom poster from the conference. I used to have T-shirts, et cetera. So, yeah, uh, Spider-Man was my other choice, but yeah. I was motivated well, I by the 1950s cartoon and the sense of humour that was evident in that rather than later versions of the Spider-Man. Yeah, I know my 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 dad was a was a huge Phantom fan as well. Um but uh, I think when the movie came out I think Billy Zane was the the Phantom that really uh, he wasn't a fan of that at all, so it didn't help. All righty. So, no. <laughs> so the next question I have was uh, is a quick question. No, go for it. Canada launched and updated the uh Phantom about a decade ago. And I forget the the Canadian production company that put it out. It was brilliant, but unfortunately, it didn't get picked up into a series. I'll have to keep my eye out for it and see if I can find it over here for you. 
Alrighty. So my, my next quick question is, um, all right, you've got a time machine. You can go either forward in time or back in time. Um, and you can meet anybody anywhere. Where are you going to go? Who are you going to meet? Oh, I'd, I'd like to go back to the night that I met my wife and relive that again. It was a brilliant night. <laughs> uh, she is she over your shoulder right now? No, she's at work. No, no, I'm, we're still working from <laughs> home as a legacy of the lockdown. So we're not back on campus till Wednesday. But as a school teacher, she was recalled to work today. Yeah. So where where did you guys meet? Uh, we met at a nightclub. <laughs> So, yeah, (laughs) we'll leave, we'll we'll leave it at that. We'll leave the story there. (laughs) All right. And, uh, getting a little bit more serious now, maybe, um, last question. Uh, okay. You've got, uh, the world's attention for 60 seconds. Uh, everybody's watching you on TV. You've got 60 seconds. You can say anything you want to the, to the world. Um, you can take this from either a, you know, general world thing or from an education standpoint, what are you going to say in that 60 seconds, the the message that you want to share with the world? Be better. You know, we need need to be better. We need to be better. That means we need to be kinder, more gentle with each other. Uh, You know, the three days in lockdown, we walked outside and there was a silence and there was talking to a few people that have been through lockdown in Melbourne and other places, what they noticed was, how the pace of life slowed down. It didn't mean they were necessarily less productive because the internet enables us to be connected at work, but there was a sense of life slowing down and a sense of silence in the world that many people appreciate. I think we need to be better. better. If we're better, we will protect the environment better. We will make better decisions about each other because we we will care more. We will care for everybody to be better. So we need to shift that focus, in my opinion, from self to how do we make each other better. And I'm connecting that now in my mind to the elite sporting context where we talk about put the emphasis on making better people who make better players, who make better clubs, who make better communities. But the starting point is not make the better player. The starting point is make the better person and make the better person than the better player. Yeah, I think that uh, that wraps things up really nicely. Um, I, my, the last episode that I recorded of this was with Jared Robinson and, and we talked a lot about that uh, that idea of, you know, this whole COVID world that we're in now has presented us with a pretty unique opportunity to to really reflect upon the way we do things. Um, and I think we, we both agreed in that conversation that, you know, it would be such a shame if we just, you know, people are just saying, well, when things get back to normal and when, when this is all done, we'll just be able to get back to how things were. But I think that that's, that's a mistake. I think this is a, a fantastic opportunity for us to really reflect upon the way that we live and what's important to us and the way that we, we interact with, with the people around us. And you know, like you say, make that, uh, that pledge to, to be a little bit better, to, to make better decisions. And I think if I look back at this conversation and, and um, all the work that you've done over the years, I think that that really sums up uh, what you're trying to do is you're, you're trying to, you know, be better as an individual, but in, in through doing that, make better experiences for, for teachers who are coming out of university so that they can go into schools um, and, and make things better for students um, so that those students can become, you know, good people and good citizens in the world. 
there's a there's a quote um, that I always like to use when I'm running workshops and and webinars and stuff like that, and then it comes out of the um, the UNESCO uh, quality physical education guidelines, and it, it talks about physical education being you know the most effective means for developing you know the skills and knowledge and attitudes to be good members of society. It doesn't talk about making amazing sports people um, or these elite performers. It, it talks about physical education providing a vehicle to to make good human beings and and I think that that really is uh what uh what I strive to do I think what you strive to do and, and what a lot of uh people out there in the phys ed community are, are really trying to do with their students so I thank you so much for for giving up a bit of your time while you're uh, sort of twiddling your thumbs on lockdown um <laughs> there's no, there's for no, anybody who would like to uh, there's no twiddling of thumbs <laughs> don't have time for that <laughs> for uh <laughs> for anyone who'd like to uh, reach out and, and contact you, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Email shane.pill at flinders.edu.au. Uh, can connect with me on Twitter at pilly 66 or uh, via LinkedIn, uh, send a connection request. Yeah, so definitely if anyone who's listening has uh, questions or um, sort of want to dive deeper into anything that, that we've talked about today, then reach out to Shane. Um, I know he's been a big uh big supporter and, and help in, in my, uh, quest to become a better, better teacher. So, so I thank him for that. And, uh, yeah, um, I'm looking forward to, to catching up with you again soon. Let's not hopefully make it be as, as many years as it has been since we last chatted. We'll uh, hopefully be able to do this a little bit more often. Yeah. It's been a great opportunity to connect again and, and thank you for your continued support of the work that, that I do. And, you know, that, that night on the junk on the way back from the Asia Pacific PE conference is, a highlight of um, you know, professional development experiences for me and I think is a really good example of the value of professional development experiences uh, often is not just the sessions we go to but the opportunities that occur outside of sessions to connect with people and um, you know, what a fantastic setting to have a professional conversation on that deck looking at the stars on a slow boat back to the harbour. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, let's keep our fingers crossed that uh, we get on top of this COVID situation and events like that can uh, be happening more, more regularly. And hopefully we can, uh, we can catch up again some, some, somewhere in the world um, again for, for another PE conference. So thanks so much, Shane. Um, a pleasure to, to spend this last 45 minutes with you and um, yeah, look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks. A huge thanks to Shane for his valuable insights in today's episode. I really hope that you got something out of that conversation and has left your mind buzzing. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Phys Edcast. If you have enjoyed it, please do all those good things like like and review the, the podcast on uh, on Apple iTunes. It definitely helps get out to more people. But even if you, uh, if you don't have time for that, just let somebody else know about this podcast. If it's something you enjoy listening to, share it with a friend, um, share it with another PE teacher or coach that you know, um, just so that more and more people can benefit from conversations like this. My name is Nathan Horn from iPhysEd.com. This has been the PhysEd Cast, and I look forward to speaking with you again really soon. <laughs>